I realised that there was something in it when Oscar de la Renta got in touch. I was like, oh. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of What She Said. Um, In this episode, which I recorded last week, I think, yes, last week, um, I chat to the wonderful Nova Reed, who, if you don't know, is a um, anti-racism and diversity campaigner. She's a consultant, um, a public speaker. She's just an inspiration, basically. I've been following her on Instagram, and I think I discovered her via another podcast, whose name I always forget, but I will put it in the show notes. Anyway, there's something about the way that Nova speaks that it's challenging, as it should be. And also, I don't know, she sort of makes sense to me, I guess, the, the way she speaks and the things she talks about. Clearly, someone hasn't had enough sleep and can't get the words out. Um, <laughs> you could really tell in these interviews that these first couple of interviews that I've done for the podcast, that I'm out of practice, I think, um, and sleep deprived and all the rest of it because I really struggle to get my words together. But anyway, I'm pretty sure that's why you still listen (laughs) or you you listen despite in spite of that oh lastly actually things that I wanted to share Nova has a new podcast so if you go to the links in the show notes just go to novareed.com you'll find it there lastly things that I want to share from my point of view my patreon I always want to share that um but also I'm going to be back at work in a couple of weeks and I will be focusing pretty much solely on podcasting and um, the aspects of my job where I consult on podcasting, train in podcasting um, and podcast production. So if you need a podcast editor or you need some production support, then get in touch because I can help. That's it. That's me done. (laughs) Um, Enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've kind of lived in your world a little bit um, over the past year after discovering you on uh, a different podcast, which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, And I was so, I don't know, enamored with you on that podcast. You're so eloquent and you were talking about things that I had heard talked about before, but not in the way that you delivered. Um, and I guess if for people that don't know who you are, Nova Reed, please introduce yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lucy, for the introduction. Um, I, I like to say I help people be the change that they want to see in the world. So I'm an anti-racism campaigner. Um, and I believe that the power of change or the capacity for change is in each and every one of us if we have the desire to get a bit uncomfortable. So I do that through, I run an online anti-racism course, I do training workshops, and I invite people to have uncomfortable conversations so that we can change our behaviour, which helps make um, our relationships and how we engage with each other and ultimately the world we live in a better place where we uh, better serve each other as human beings, which we're failing to do at the moment. And how did you come to your work? Because your background is really interesting. I mean, I say your background, but you're still, you still have um, other strands of your business that you started off with, right? Yeah. So eclectic, I guess. Um, how, how did I start doing this work? Wasn't planned. <laughs> <laughs> the short answer is 
I, I think that I, if I'm honest, the journey started when I was a seven-year-old girl and I didn't feel like I fitted in because of the colour of my skin and I experienced a huge amount of racism. And, you know, that I, you carry that with you. Uh, I cannot separate my race from my identity. So, you know, it's a huge part of who I am. It's not all that I am, but it's a huge part. And I guess the, the main event was when I got engaged to be married in 2011. And I describe myself as um, a feminist. I wasn't particularly interested, I would say, in getting married. It wasn't something I fantasized about. I didn't imagine what my wedding would look like. Hadn't even, you know, I thought about settling down and being with somebody, but I, I didn't really fantasize about a wedding day. And so when I got engaged, I didn't know about the industry and I was so excited to start that journey launched myself into news agents. In fact, we got engaged um, at about 11pm on South Bank in London, which is by the River Thames with these beautiful fairy lit trees. So when we got engaged, everything was closed. <laughs> so I had to wait until the morning after the night before to get these magazines. And I was so excited and I brought two, got home and I was flicking through them with such you know, delight and anticipation of what's to come. And I quickly noticed you know, most of these magazines at the time had about 300 pages and I had two of them. So 600 pages worth of inspiration, not one single black person or person of colour in any of them. So I thought, oh, you know, I always like to think about, uh, you know, give the benefit of the doubt to a circumstance. I think, oh, maybe that's just a this season, a one-off. And so I went back to the news agent, I looked at the other titles and it was exactly the same thing. I then started being invited or uh, going to wedding shows, checking out venues, being given wedding brochures. And it was like, if you are British and you're black or brown, you do not exist. I remember speaking up about it and, and some friends said, oh, well, isn't there, um, you know, Nova, isn't there a magazine for black brides? And at the time there wasn't, but even if there was, why do I have to go? Why are we segregated? Why can't I just find wedding inspiration in a wedding magazine that speaks to everyone? So that was a catalyst. I started uh, a blog called Blue Bride. That then turned into a wedding website that provided inspiration for the people often not seen. That then morphed into a wedding show. <laughs> Um, and through that, I started to do consultancy. So businesses, brands were contacting me. I realized that there was something in it when Oscar de la Renta got in touch. I was like, yeah. oh, <laughs> at this point, it wasn't a business. It was just me ranting, basically, being fed up of not being included. And they saw that I had a, a niche, but loyal and growing following. And from 100, it became 10,000. And it just grew of people feeling exactly like me. And they were like, you know, lots of brands were contacting me saying, we want to work with you, we want to sponsor you. How do you reach your audience? So that turned into consultancy. And when I got engaged, I was actually working in mental health part time as a uh, mental health and disability as a uh, caregiver is working as part of a well-being service so I was always used to the Equalities Act working with the underdog working with people who are who need to you know advocating for others and um, that just morphed into diversity consultancy and that has now morphed into anti-racism um, campaigning because I found that through the diversity consultancy those who are running businesses or wanting to be better inclusive of others 
we're really comfortable talking about how to better engage people in the LGBTQ community or uh, the disabled community. And I'm not saying it was easy, but they were more open to those conversations. Race, they just wanted to bypass it. I was like, wow. So we're not bypassing it. (laughs) We're leaning in. And I guess what led me to working more with individuals is that when I would do these workshops with organisations, obviously the people in the room are individual human beings who all have their own lives, their own families. And after my talk, I would always be approached by mostly women, but not exclusively, and often those who were parents or thinking about becoming parents, and they're like, oh my goodness, you have just blown my mind. I hadn't thought about any of this, and I do not want to pass on patterns of behaviour to my children. I want to raise socially conscious children, and I want to be part of change, help. So that's led me to where I am now. I would say that the majority of my audience um, are those women who can see injustice, can see inequality. It's so uncomfortable for so many of us to even bring up race and say, oh, I I was even talking to a friend the other day who um, was having to explain to somebody why, uh, even if it's funny, (laughs) it's still racist. And and that conversation trying to explain to somebody um, within their family had exhausted them so much that they you know they spent the whole day feeling down and what's the point etc etc anyhow this is the thing that you explained so incredibly well why we always have to be talking about race and especially because it's uncomfortable yeah um I I am a truth teller, and I'm like you. You're, you if you're if you're centering, brace yourselves. Truth bomb coming. If you're centering, you feeling uncomfortable at the center of the conversation, you're not helping. Like it, it, this is something that is bigger than you. This is something that is outside of you, and and isn't necessarily about you. It's about right. This is a systemic issue. This is a systemic global issue. We are perpetuating cycles like we still have problems with racism hundreds of years after um slavery was abolished hundreds of years after it was normal for uh people to believe that white was a more superior race we're still having issues with it and we only solve that by being truthful and recognizing our part in it and sometimes our part in it is not doing anything like be, thinking that you're you're one of the good ones, so that's enough. It's like, but that you're not taking action to consciously help. I um did a TEDx talk in, uh, in November, all about hidden racism and the impact that that has on children who are learning their cues from us. And I, I quoted something from the American Academy of Pediatrics that had just come out with a study around the time of my talk. And it said, if we care about the health and well-being of all our children, then we we need to take steps to address racism. And to me, the work is urgent. Just bring it up. Just bring it up. Call it out when you see it. And mm. so another thing that I wanted to talk to you about was the kind of, I mean, this might seem really, really obvious, but the difference between covert and overt racism and how we can call it out and how we can notice it and take action because it's all well and good and I'm very guilty of um, going through phases where I felt that my activism 
was it was mostly online really it was mostly I think it's it was performative um Mm. and actually (laughs) we can all be we can all be activists and should be activists offline absolutely um so I guess uh let me start by so we have a a, I guess a, a, a global understanding of one view of what racism is and we've got stuck on that one view and that one view is that racism can only exist as an intentional and conscious act of hate done by one person to another based on the belief that their skin is more superior if we only think about that definition what happens is when covert when subtle when unintentional racism occurs as it does every day in multiple settings we want to explain it away. Oh, well, that wasn't racism. That was just a difference of opinions or you're being paranoid or it was just a joke. And it's because we only have this one-dimensional view of what racism is. It means that when other types happen, we don't recognise them as such and therefore we don't address them. So the covert, the subtle, I call them microaggressions, the stuff that exists in systems, are a form of everyday discrimination. And that could be... Uh, that could be something we say. It could be so anything from uh, a behaviour like "Can I touch your hair?" Um, right through to "I don't see colour." Right through to people using language like "I'm sick of them playing the race card." Now, if we unpick where that language comes from, that's a racist terminology used in the sixties, used in the nineteen sixties. Um, but we don't understand because we don't. We're not learning what our history is, um, and there are all these gaps in our knowledge. So. Um, those are just stereotypical types of everyday racism that occurs. So the hair touching is, if we link that back to history, there used to be human zoos in the UK where black people, including children, were paraded around like zoo animals for white and white for white people to stare at them, to touch them, to prod and poke. So when we start to have an understanding of where we have come from, we will understand why that sense of entitlement to touch another person's body and hair because it's different to your own feels so inherent. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about everyday racism. It's not intended to cause harm, but it does cause harm. It's a way of everyday othering and making people, communities, feel like that they are they don't belong, they are somehow misplaced. Oh, where are you from? That's another one. Even though I'm speaking the Queen's English. Where are you really from? Where are you originally from? I'm from (laughs) here. I was born here. And I will have circumstances where people... I remember once I was attending a friend's wedding in Ireland and the uh, priest, gorgeous human, um, was just so intrigued by me. And he asked me that question and I said, England. Um, And then he asked me again. So I said, oh, for shit. <laughs> <laughs> so he asked me again, and then I went back to where I was born. <laughs> and you could just see he was just so perplexed. And in the end, he said, no, 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 where are your parents from? My dad was born in London. <laughs> so I was being yeah. a bit cheeky with him. And so we played this dance. Um, but he wanted to know what my ancestry yeah. was. He wanted to know, well, no, why are you brown? You're black. What's, you know, there, there is an unspoken belief that if you are not white, then you cannot be British, Irish, Scottish, 
you know, whatever white majority uh, uh, country that you are in. Um, and it's not, you know, those are the types of everyday othering that, that cause harm and are a type of racism, systemic racism. I think it's, uh, yeah, and it's so hard to notice it unless, um, unless, it, it's hard to notice it if you're white. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the point. If you're saying, yeah. oh, I've never noticed that before. It's like, well, yes, that's because, um, that's because of the colour of your skin. That's because you haven't experienced it. Um, and that's the same mm. for all of us, uh, on a spectrum, really, because there's obviously colorism within, um, within yeah. all communities so it's really important to not make this a um as somebody white passing I should consider myself with all the privileges of almost all of the privileges of a white woman yeah but you will also experience in you will also experience othering as well yeah yeah for sure for sure so your latest course which I think is already closed now um ally Oh, I have, I have, um, I have two, well, I have several. I have Courageous Courage, which okay. is, I have two editions. I have one for allies, people who are actively wanting to be more effective in recognising racism beyond an overt act, to build confidence in being able to have uncomfortable conversations with family. Because most of the time when I'm talking about doing this work, being an ally, that means having to have uncomfortable conversations with people around our dinner table, people who we've let casual racism pass by. So that course is all about building resilience, building confidence to start having conversations where you're affecting change, whether that is at home, in the workplace. And that's um, that's a five-day course. So I do the same thing for black and brown women and that I've got one coming up at the end of April uh air 27 I don't know when this will go out <laughs> a couple of weeks. um okay so I've got got one coming out uh the 27th of April but I have an online anti-racism course which is um you know I am always encouraging people to get involved with that and, and there's nothing stopping anyone starting today if they're called to do that work and that's where we really sort of dig deep with better understanding ourselves and who we are and what our inherent isms look like because a lot of the time people say well Nova how can I help best thing you can do to help is learn what your inherent isms are because they're there and if we don't know what they are we can't address them and we do continue passing them on um so it's it's self-interrogation learning who we are you know Building resilience, um, understand, you know, case studies, it's video lessons from me, it's understanding, you know, give, I'm giving you some loose examples of, you know, the historical significance of why these things are problematic. Um, and, you know, just tools, language, what's okay to say, what's not. Um, and people who've gone through that course have said it's, it's just life changing. So yeah, that one is always available and it's on my website. And what would you say are, I mean, you've, you've talked about this already and pretty succinctly said that, you know, if you want to help, because I know there are so many people and there will be so many people listening thinking, how can I help? What can I do that is really going to make a difference in the world? Um, and it's working on yourself for sure. Yeah, a hundred percent. First, because, you know, often people will come and their primary motivation is, that they are either new parents or their parents, you know, they are parents of uh, mixed race children or 
Um, they just had an awakening and they're doing it because they want to serve their children or the young people in their life. And I'm like, the best way you can serve your children is for you to unlearn your racism, you to unlearn your inherent racism and to stop denying that it's there because that will role model courage and vulnerability that actually this is an unavoidable byproduct of being born into a system that legalised systemic oppression for 400 plus years. It's unavoidable. And we also learn it as black and brown people. We are also exposed to the same programming. So we have our own inner work to do as well. And because I used to work in mental health, I'm, I'm very curious about human behaviour. So a lot of my work is and bringing that into it. I'm exploring shame and guilt. I'm exploring anxiety of what this work brings up in people because it's, it's anxiety provoking. There's huge fear around it. Um, and so we unpick that, we explore that in a, in a safe way and also giving tools to, you know, around language and things. But once you start doing the work yourself, it becomes much easier to advocate because mm. everything makes sense. You know what to say. I think that's one of the biggest things I think all of us do is, is knowing what to say and knowing what not to say mm. and feeling worried about... Um, yeah, there's that shame element, but also, and I don't know if you've ever been through this. I can't imagine that you have because you're, you're just very graceful. And I don't know, I get the impression that you know yourself pretty well and would never. I've done a lot of inner work, yeah. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's ongoing. Tell. It's ongoing. There's something around falling into the shame and calling out. Which I don't, I'm not, um, I'm not attacking the call out culture at all. That's not for me to be attacking it. But there's something around the shame, the shame piece that I think is really fascinating. And, and I don't know if you ever experience this with kind of your students on your courses, but we sometimes feel like we are doing something if we're shaming somebody else. I don't know if it's yeah. a, a case of like pushing our inner shame onto 100%. somebody else. It's 100%. It's because it, it's a form of distraction. Well, I'll make you feel bad because that means I don't have to focus on why this is making me feel like shit. Yeah. Um, and the best way for us to, like, we carry it, we, we carry, like, collectively, I believe in collective healing. There is so much uh, research that, you know, about the power of being in community. And we're not in community anymore in, in Western countries, not, you know, not, Go back to my ancestry and, and, and exploring West African traditions and, and, and collectively gathering for song or healing or grief or what, you know, when we, uh, let me put this into context that, that we, we can understand, like when we have funerals, that's a form of healing in community. Um, we're, we're together. There is a sense of whilst there is grief, there is often also joy and, um, the opportunity to share memories and, and that provides a sense of healing. And it's the same for this work. We don't, heal collectively and there was a whole load of collective shame that we carry because we haven't acknowledged where we have come from and the impact that has had and continues to have on outcomes of human beings um so we carry this shame so even speaking about race like you see it in the in the uk press this year like in media it was more uh of uh, people were taking more offense to having racism called out than the actual racism itself. That's the problem. Yeah. And part of that is shame. Um, and the best way that we can 
address our shame is to speak on it. That is making me feel shame right now. Because of X, Y and Z. But we don't. It's easier to bury our shame by projecting our BS onto another onto another person because it means we don't have to deal with it. There's a really... I, you spoke about this, well, you speak about it all the time, but I remember when um, you were being called to talk a lot in the press about Meghan and Meghan Markle, who yeah, was subject to hideous racism, still is, in the yeah. press. And the amount of people in the press who were... And just just people in general who are so offended at the idea that they could ever be racist mm. more than Megan's, you know, actual trauma at being yes. subject to racism. Yeah, yeah, that that just I mean, it baffles me, but it also it doesn't baffle me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, it's really profound, and I think what. You know, the situation with Meghan and Harry making what couldn't have been an easy decision to literally emancipate themselves from the royal family so that they don't have to be subjected to this anymore um, is is the painful truth of what it can be like to exist as a black or brown person in, in, uh, in the UK that wants to brush this under the carpet because it's not an overt act of hate done by somebody who wants to throw petrol bombs in the letterbox. You then end up debating whether it was or wasn't racism rather than actually dealing with the trauma because racism is a form of trauma. And that's often forgotten about and that nobody's talking about that in mainstream. It's interesting. I'll, I'll share this. I, I did a interview um, about Meghan and Harry for a certain uh, um, media entity. And it was a video interview and they normally, and it was all about racism in media. And they said that they normally have those series picked up by a certain publication and they said of all their years doing this my episode about racism in media that publication said that they didn't want to feature it and I was like wow there's that truth bomb again so yeah it's really painful for some people and you know I am I often had this uh, conversation with people around you know the beginning of the year where we've seen the, all these debates on tv about whether what happened to Megan or was racist or not I said this is really interesting that 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 media is undermining this work why are they not bringing in race critical theory experts why are they not bringing in anti-racism educators to talk about this stuff on a theoretical level where they've got the data and they've got the stats so that they can argue this case as an expert, but they weren't. They were just bringing in random people who were black or brown to mm. debate it rather than experts who work in this field. And I was like, there's a reason that they've chosen to do that. There is a reason why they've chosen to undermine the work because the data and evidence is there that we have a problem with systemic racism in the UK. And until we address it, it will just continue taking on different formats. And there's another thing I think which I find pretty interesting, and is something that I hadn't, it's a, I, I it hadn't occurred to me at all, is that in these instances where yeah you're they just bring in token people so that they can mm. for entertainment essentially yeah um they the media will also seek to find um, a person of colour who supports 
what they want to say. So a really good example of this, a couple of good examples of this in my mind are Pretty Patel um, and a news, I think it was Newsnight. Anyway, they were arguing about, I don't know, whether racism exists or some nonsense. And mm. I'm sure Fiona Bruce said, oh, and, and just to say, Pretty Patel said that this wasn't racist. And it was kind of an interjection, essentially, mm. which meant... There's a brown person out here who says that this doesn't exist, so we should take that into account. Yeah, yeah. And it's da- it's dangerous. They do that a lot. Media does that a lot. They play us off against each other. But, you know, another thing that they're not, that it's just been not spoken about is the fact that we're not a monolith. We're not all going to have the same thoughts and opinions about things. But if Preeti Patel, an anti-racism educator or a race critical theorist who understands the nuances of what racism looks like beyond an overt act of hate. No, she's not. She's not an expert in it. So why are you asking her? It's like asking a medical professor. It's like asking me as a um, an anti-racism campaigner to talk about infectious diseases. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's just no correlation whatsoever. But there is this, again, it's a form of racism. Well, because she's brown, it's an assumption. She'll be, she'll be able to, she's an expert on it. She no, speaks to all people of colour. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's a great example of what everyday racism looks like. <laughs> but it, it, I mean, we're laughing because it is, it is ridiculous. Ridiculous. But yeah. I think to a lot of people, they'll, they'll, they'll be thinking, well, okay, so I'm really confused because I don't want it to be racist. And also I fat, you know, this person in the media, this, uh, broadcaster that I respect has also just pointed out that Preeti Patel um, has said it isn't racist. So okay, that I'm going to take that because actually I think it's not necessarily about whether it makes sense to a person. It's safe, isn't it? Then they can yeah. just kind of go, okay, I can dismiss that. I can tick that off my list. Yeah. That yeah. that isn't racist. Yeah, you can ignore that now because that makes me feel better. Mm. Um, doesn't actually solve the problem and and, you know like I always say you know we've got stats data reams of research that is showing the impact of racism in children as young as three it's showing the disparities in healthcare that we're even seeing now it's showing the disparities in social output there is so much data and research out there about the impact of systemic racism it's like how much more evidence do we need how much more accounts of lived experiences do we need before we act and change outcomes. That's the bit that I find frustrating. But I also understand that a huge part of this work is that there is a defensiveness and a denial because if we lean into the fact that, ah, actually, I have been complicit in this, I have been contributing to this unknowingly, I have said these things too, what does that say about me? And then there's a whole shame spiral. And as I say, most people don't want to lean into that vulnerability and they will do everything they can to reject it and push it on elsewhere. So the answer to that is get onto Labour's courses. <laughs> Stat. <laughs> <laughs> Collective healing is necessary. And one of the things I love is that, you know, on my courses, I'm talking with, I'm talking about racism. Also with lightness, there is, you know, um, it's serious, but we can talk about these things with lightness they can be it doesn't have to be this heavy oh my god all the time but has to be taken seriously and 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 I think that starts with a desire from us to commit to do it to commit to being part of change 
That's a beautiful point to end it on. Um, so I've decided to ask my guests one last question, which is, um, what is your signature dish? Which I oh know is God. not related, but I think it says a lot about a person. Oh no, I can't pick one. I can't. Okay, you can pick. Can, you can pick a couple. Oh, I'm picking three. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tradition, uh, Caribbean oxtail with butter beans and rice. Uh, I love Japanese chicken teriyaki <laughs> and anything Thai. Thai is my all-time favourite cuisine. I can't, I can't choose between those three, I'm afraid. Anything Thai I'll eat. Oh, it's just, I, I adore spices. So yeah. Mm. <laughs> I lived in Thailand and I, um, I did not cope well with the spices. I always thought I was oh. good with spicy food. No, I Interesting. How long were you there for? Um, so, uh, my husband and I were traveling for about three years. We lived in Thailand for about eight months. Not very long. Wow. Wow. Well, you, a long time if the spicy food isn't working for you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. My stomach and bowels had a bad time. <laughs> we're in overdrive. Oh, bless. Bless. Thank you so, so much for being part of what she said. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Lucy. Really enjoyed it.